0: I got to meet them during the welcome. Hey, <laughs> I was like, I didn't know you are going to be here. Things you find out during welcomes. So Merry Christmas. Is it too early? For half the room it is. For the other half of the room, they're super excited that there's all these trees and their stuff. Yes. Yay, Christmas. All the people didn't clap don't like Christmas. So we know that now. <laughs> I don't even know what to do now. I'm like, I should start the sermon over. Okay, (laughs) I'll be okay. The guy that hates Christmas freaked me out. It was Jeff Sanders. Um, So we're Christmas season. I love the Christmas season. I love talking uh, about just the birth of Christ. I love my son crying loud in the balcony. Um, But it's Christmas season. (laughs) How do you do this? You have hundreds of people staring at me. My child's crying. People hating Christmas. All right. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that we get to come together. Lord, I thank you for who you are and what this season brings. Um, I thank you for for Jesus, Lord, and just what that means to us and to this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. (laughs) So we're in the Christmas season. Um, I'm really excited about this Christmas series. We're talking about who needs Christmas. And the concept and the idea behind this comes from uh, Isaiah 9, uh, and we'll talk about that in a second but just the uh, attributes or even the names of the child that is to be born, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, mighty God, all these different things. And today what we're specifically talking about is conflict or the conflicted and how the wonderful counselor kind of speaks into that. Now, I don't know about you, but has anybody ever had a conflict? Has anyone ever had a conflict over a Christmas gift? So you know that saying people make, oh, it's, it doesn't matter. It's, it's the thought that counts. That's the biggest bunch of behonky I've ever heard because I put a lot of thought into a Christmas gift and it didn't turn out well. So, as always, very thoughtful husband that I am, I pre-planned for Christmas gift and I, I got, you know those blankets where you can put a picture on them? You see where this is going, right? I got a picture of myself and put it on the blanket with my wife and so a picture from Haiti, and I got her a blanket for Christmas. And I thought, how thoughtful, how sweet it was. Who wouldn't want a giant, huge blanket of me, right? Apparently, my wife wasn't as appreciative of the blanket that I was put a lot of thought into. But then, she got me a Christmas present, or she bought it earlier, or I don't know, but we exchanged gifts, and she got me khaki pants and speakers for my computer, which, okay, All right, whatever, you know, eh, meh. But like, it's okay. But what you don't know is that she had already gotten me khaki pants and speakers for my computer a week earlier, and she forgot that she had gotten that for me. So she gave me the same exact gift that she gave me earlier. So I had two sets of speakers and two sets of khaki pants. I don't know who was more at fault at this one, but needless to say, we both weren't happy with our Christmas gifts and there was conflict. Now, maybe I could have looked into some wise counsel. I probably should have called one of you trendy people out there and realized that a blanket of me is not the best Christmas gift for your wife. But, you know, to each his own. But that was what I thought. So we're talking a little bit about conflict, but before we do that, I want to kind of talk about Isaiah, Isaiah 9. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 2 through 7. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to explain how this kind of works. So Isaiah is a prophet. He was 100 years before Daniel. Last month we talked about Daniel and kind of his story and his life. But 100 years before Daniel is the prophet Isaiah. Now, prophets have two kind of abilities. They have the ability of foretelling, which is kind of what we all think of when we think of a prophet, someone who can tell the future. But also they have the ability of forthtelling, which is preaching the truth to kind of a sinful people. Now the way to understand foretelling is the future, but forthtelling is, think of Nathan. The prophet Nathan, when he goes and he confronts King David and he says, Hey, I'm going to tell you this story about sheep. You know, there's a hundred sheep over here and you have all these hundred sheep, but you take the single sheep from this lonely old man and he finds out that Nathan's talking about him. And hey, that's you. You stole someone's sheep talking about him taking Bathsheba. And that's telling. But when we look at Isaiah 9, 2 through 7 specifically, we're actually looking at foretelling Isaiah is prescribing something that's going to happen into the future. So let's read that. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. And as with joy at the harvest, as glad when they divided the spoils, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, You have broken as the day of Midian for every boot of tramping warrior in battle tumult. And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For unto us a child is born. It echoes Luke. Maybe for some of us it's the Charlie Brown Christmas special with Linus holding his blanket and all of a sudden dropping it, which he only drops his blanket whenever he reads Scripture or talks about Jesus. Just a little fun fact for you. And Linus drops his blanket and says, For unto us a child is born. And I feel like we understand the gravity a, a little bit of this. You know, uh, Jesus is coming, Christmas, I get it. I get it. It's the same every year. (laughs) Every 25th of December, there's a manger, there's a baby. I I get it. Even if you have never heard anything about Jesus or you don't know who Jesus is, everyone knows about little 8-pound, 5-ounce baby Jesus that you put in the manger. You've seen the stories, the Christmas specials on Hallmark, all these different things. But for us, I feel and I believe that if we need to understand if we want to understand the future that's prescribed here, we need to take a look at the past. We need to kind of look at the beginning. Now, if you don't know this, this is, then this is poor on my, my doing. I, I haven't done a good job leading you. But if you don't know this, every single page of this book is stained with the blood of Jesus. Jesus. Every single thing in this book, from Genesis to Micah, is proclaiming or foretelling the birth of this King to come, Jesus Christ, when we see it culminate in Isaiah. And everything pushing back, Acts to Revelation, points back to this singular moment where Jesus Christ came and died and rose again. That's what this is about. It's not about good advice. It's not about what you need to do and what you don't need to do. So many times in our culture, we twist these words to fit into our paradigm. But the paradigm is this. This book is about Jesus and Him alone. And I want to show you that today. And I want to show you the tapestry that God has been weaving from Genesis to Isaiah. And it culminates in this verse that we read right here in Isaiah 9. So if you would, turn with me to uh, Genesis three 15. We'll get to there in a second, but I'm going to set up the story. Adam and Eve. Now, in the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, God created the heavens and the earth. Was it a slow process or did it happen instantaneously? Okay, doesn't matter. What you need to know is God created it. God created the heavens and the earth, the ocean, everything. He starts creating beautiful things, zebras, dinosaurs, all these different things. Dave, Jeff's favorite animal, the duckbill platypus. You know, he created it. It's beautiful. Night and day, he creates. But something happens where God says, "I'm going to make something so special that I'm going to make it in the very image of myself." Adam and Eve, male and female, and Adam and Eve are living in perfect harmony, not only with each other but with God. And all of a sudden the story begins to change. The serpent enters into the story and begins to distract, dissuade Eve into eating the apple of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she eats it. And the first time in the history of the world conflict entered into the world. Conflict between Adam and Eve. Conflict between God and man. And we see this conflict as the beginning of all conflict. Conflict. And it's crazy to see, and now I want to say this, on a side note, it's not Eve's fault alone. Where men are passive, sin seems to flourish. So we can't just blame Eve for eating the apple, I know I make jokes about that sometimes. What we see is conflict and sin enter into this world. But the beautiful thing about this and what we're going to focus on is not necessarily the sin aspect of it, but is that from the very beginning of time, Genesis 1, God had a plan to resolve the conflict and restore the conflicted. And it starts in Genesis 3.15. God is speaking. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise... He shall crush your head or bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. This is Jesus talking to the serpent. God talking to the serpent about Jesus. The He, and I want you to underline this. The He, you can circle it, underline it, put a star by the 15. The He in this verse is the first foretelling of Jesus Christ. It's actually called the Proto-Evangelion, the first Gospel. That God, when when conflict entered into this world, God had a plan And we see it begin to unfold in Genesis 3.15. And it doesn't just stop there. Abraham, God calls Abraham out. He says, Abraham, go to the land that I will show you. I'll make your nation great. As many as the sand and the the beaches, as the stars in the sky. This kind of promise to Abraham. And we see God cut this covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. Now, I'm going to start in verse 9 because I kind of want to explain the importance and the depth of this, because all of this is leading up to Isaiah 9. God said to Abraham, he said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a, a young pigeon. And then in verse 7, he says, cut these animals in half. Sorry, it does. Cut them in half and make a pathway. He doesn't cut the birds in half, but he cuts the animals in half and he makes a pathway. And so the way the Old Testament covenants work, and they do it sometimes around the world, think about it if you shake in somebody's hand and a third person kind of cuts it. It's cutting a contract. They still use that terminology when you're you're buying a house or doing things, you need to cut the contract, write the contract. And so they cut the contract. So the ways that kings used to cut contracts is they would walk between the animals and what they were declaring is, if I break this covenant, what happened to these animals will happen to me. That's what the covenant is. And each person walked through the covenant. Now, the promises were based on something else, but the actual cutting of the covenant looked like that. So the God says, hey, I promise that I will make your nation great. I promise that I will always be with you. I promise that your descendants will just rule this world. That's what I promise to you, that I will always be with you and that your children will go on and rule. And I will be there. But that will only happen, Abraham, if you love me, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. If you love your neighbor as yourself, if you do what I've commanded, then I will keep my promise. That's how the contract was written. Abraham begins to separate the animals, and as he's about to walk through it, he falls asleep. Verse 17, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, To your offspring I give you this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. It seems just like, okay, God cut a covenant. With Abraham, awesome. God loves me. This I know the Bible tells me so. But what we don't understand and what we don't see and the importance of everything is that Abraham never walked through the covenant. What God did, and this is the most mind-boggling thing, this, right, circle this, underline it, highlight it, whatever you need to do. God walked through the covenant, and he says, you know what? If I don't keep my promise, I'll destroy myself. Like, if I don't bless your land, if I don't bless your people, if I don't do what I promised Abraham, I'll destroy myself. Which, oh, God can uphold his end, no biggie. But then God says, you know what, Abraham, I know that you can't uphold your end. So I'm going to walk through the covenant again. And if you don't keep your part, what happened to these animals will happen to me, not to Abraham. God never prescribed that he would destroy his people. What he said in Genesis 15 is, I will destroy myself if you are disobedient, if you are in sin, if you're in conflict, if you are the ones that turn to other gods and idolatry and all these things, which we all have, God never said, I'm going to destroy you or smite you. That's a huge misunderstanding when it comes to Christianity. It's not about, I got to do this, I got to do this, don't do this, don't do that. It's not about those things. It's about Jesus, because he already knows that we're not going to do those things. And that's what's so beautiful about the gospel is that Jesus said, I'm going to destroy myself when you don't hold up to your end of the bargain. And so we see this glimpse of God entering into the story and stepping down and walking through this covenant, but it becomes a little bit more real in 1 Chronicles 17. It said, when your days are fulfilled, they're talking to David. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will rise up for you, God talking to David. I will rise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Sounds familiar. I will not take my steadfast love for him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. God promising to David that his son will be the son that we talk about in Isaiah. Back to Isaiah, verse 6 For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the kid. This is the kid that's gonna strike the serpent's head. This is the kid that walked through the covenant that we didn't fulfill. This is the kid that looks like the three year old goat, the three year old cow and sheep that was torn apart. This is that kid. So when Isaiah writes in this, this is the thing that we've been hoping for since Genesis 1. This is what the writer Isaiah is writing. He is writing that this is the one. Everything in this book up until this point was pointing to this moment where it says, For unto us a child is born. Christmas isn't just about a child being born, it's about the hope of humanity. It's about the only conflict that has no resolution being resolved. We can't resolve the conflict between us and God. You can't. We can barely resolve the conflict between each other. So God stepped in as he promised he would from Genesis. And there's hundreds of verses like those. Step in to say, hey, not only will I resolve this, I'm going to restore you as one who is conflicted. It's interesting, this Christmas season... Even Thanksgiving, which is past, we we see a lot of conflict between each other, a lot of different ways, relational conflict, personal conflict, just a lot of different things come to fruition during holidays. I don't know why, I don't know if it's just kind of the crucible of people that normally don't get together, get together, or just the stress of the seasons, or finances, or whatever it is, there's a lot of differing factors, some self-induced, that create conflict between each other. But what I want us to understand, and I know kind of sidetracking here, but I want us to understand that this idea of the wonderful counselor, the first aspect of the child that is being born, is that if we hold true to the promises that we've seen, as you've seen these promises come to fruition, and you learn that it's about dying to yourself for life rather than getting what you deserve, a lot of conflict will be solved, personally and relationally. Because the root of conflict forms in the very beginning, as we've seen with Adam and Eve, it it forms in pride. That I know better than God, or I know better than you. And if we decide, if we choose, with the help of Christ to say, you know what, it's not about me. But rather it's about Christ. It's about this child that's being born. I feel, I believe that a lot of conflict, even personally in my life, would be resolved or even averted if I decided that it's not about my wants or my desires or my needs, but rather focusing on who has Christ called me to be. It's so interesting that they call him the Wonderful Counselor. I would probably translate it to a Wonder of a Counselor, because we've all been to counselors—some good, some bad—but this is the perfect counselor. And it's interesting because the truth that we see in Scripture that's written thousands and thousands of years ago is the same for us today. That God wants to solve our conflict. He always has. And He's always had a solution for it. We've just really never recognized it. And the solution to our personal conflict and a lot of our relational conflict is having a right relationship with God because when the vertical relationship is destroyed, horizontal relationship goes with it. We can't fix the horizontal relationship most of the time without fixing the vertical relationship with God. And he's given us an avenue through Jesus Christ. You see, true wisdom knows that in defeat is victory. True wisdom knows that in weakness is strength. True wisdom knows that in death, there's life. So what does it look for us as a body of believers to die to ourselves this Christmas? What does it look like for you to engage the conflict in a way where you humble yourself and you say, you know what, I was wrong, even if you weren't? Because there's two types of conflict that we engage in in this Christmas and these holidays in life. One, it's where we go and we repent and we say, hey, I'm sorry, and the conflict's resolved. Or we go and we repent and the conflict isn't resolved, and that's not on you. You can't fix, you can't save anyone. You have to do what God's called you to do. Now, there's another side of the coin where the conflict is your fault and you're not willing to humble yourself and to engage in that and and repent. Sometimes, I see this all the time, we see it on TV shows and different things, and we think it's funny. But the reality is it's sad. When, oh, my, my sister and I, we fought, I haven't talked to her in 16 years. I don't even remember what it was about. It's a, a, a badge of pride. If that's you, you need to engage in that and repent. And try to restore the relationship that, that God has given you, the avenue to restore through Jesus Christ by humbling yourself. What would it look like for us as a campus, as a body of believers, to be a glimmer of the hope that we see in the Scriptures? Maybe it's at work where you engage a conflict situation and you speak truth into it, or in the family, or, or personally, or, but what does it look like for us this Christmas season when we see the Christmas trees, when we hear see the Hallmark shows, or the Christmas carols or, or whatever it is that we remember that for unto us a child is born. It's not just a regular child. It's not just Christmas Jesus. That the, uh, the, re- the only reason that God came was to restore the conflict which He's going to restore when He dies. I know a lot of us think of Christmas, 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 and it is. It's the most beautiful time of the year. It's the most beautiful story in the world where God comes in flesh to restore a conflict that we cannot restore, that we've tried, and that we continue to mess up over and over again, which we still try to restore, and we still mess up. But since Christmas happened 2,000 plus years ago, now we have the solution. So whatever it is for you, whatever conflict you're in, whatever you're struggling with, I pray that you can remember that through and in Jesus Christ, you can resolve that conflict. Personally, relationally, whatever it is. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for who You are. I thank You that Christmas isn't just about a baby being born but rather about God dwelling with us. God, you never had to walk through the covenant. You never had to promise anything. You never had to do anything for us, but out of your abundance of love and out of your mercy, you have reached your hand down to every single person in this room and in this city and in this world, and you've offered them the gift of Christmas. Lord, I pray for anyone who's conflicted right now, personally, relationally, Lord, that they will find comfort in you this season. Lord, I pray that as a a body of believers, as, as people who claim Christ, that we will go out into this world and we'll look different. Not because we can do it in our own strength or our own willpower, Lord, but rather because we rest in the fact that a child was born who was a wonderful counselor. Lord, I thank you for this church and I thank you for Christmas. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.